Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello and welcome to this edition of Voices from the Irish Life and Lore Archives. I'm Morris O'Keefe. The Good Friday Agreement, which was signed on the 10th of April 1998, brought an end to the Northern Ireland Troubles that had prevailed since the late 60s. This week's podcast, you will hear three people who were involved and played a role in bringing the parties together to sign the agreement. Later in the podcast, you will hear Bertie Ahern and Tom Elliott. But first we hear Martin Manzer. He was former uh, Fianna Fáil politician and he was a special advisor to Northern Ireland when he was involved in the discussions between the Nationalist Party and the Irish government. And he regularly met with intermediary Father Alec Reid. And here is Martin's take one of the more important things that I achieved in my time was uh, I wrote a paper on the basis of a possible Fianna Fáil Labour government and, you know, the policy compatibility. Uh, they were, they, the, their tactic was to have a dialogue with Democratic, was it were a Workers' Party or I think Democratic Left? I can't remember which it was at that stage. But anyway, it might have been still the Workers' Party. No, it was Democratic Left. Um, and they put together a policy paper which they sent to us. Now, based on the manifestos, they had a rather detailed manifesto. We had a rather summary one. I had been already, Bertie Ahern had asked me to do it. He was Minister for Finance at the time. Um, I had something prepared. A journalist leaked what was going to be said to us a few hours beforehand, so I was able just to adjust the nuts and bolts a little bit. And within an hour of them sending us their paper, we had sent back our paper, and we then headed off to Edinburgh for the European Council. You remember the stuff about the seven, eight billion uh, in structural funds. Um, and that actually turned it, they were about to enter into meaningful negotiations with Fine Gael. Um, but between the money in Edinburgh and, of course, when Reynolds came back, he briefed Dick Spring how far, I couldn't tell you, but he briefed him about the initiative going on in the background. And you see, for, for any presentational purposes, it could be presented as something that was being done through the intermediary of Father Reed. He didn't have to explicitly say that his advisor was meeting 
uh, was meeting them. Um, and that, if you like, was the sort of fiction that was maintained um, for, for the following two years until the, until the, until the ceasefire happened. What my colleagues or what Reynolds' colleagues, one or two of them, or what they knew or didn't know, I did. but Reynolds, who was a very garrulous man normally, he understood clearly that if if he talked too much and too specifically about what was going on behind the scenes, all bets would be off. The one, the one guiding principle the Republican movement had was is they had to be, from their point of view, in control of the narrative. The very last thing they wanted was to be besieged by the media as, uh, you know, when's the ceasefire coming, mm. this sort of thing. So they actually liked to send the media off on a false trail. Like in 94, they held, held a, a Letterkenny Ardesh, I think at the end of July, at which they rejected the Downing Street Declaration, from which everyone concluded the peace process is dead. Now, a fortnight earlier, I'd had a meeting with Martin McGuinness in which everything was being set for a ceasefire at the end of August. Um, so they were pointing the media in that direction, and some of the media never forgave them, um, uh, while actually they were, they, they, they were going in that. And my difficulty, of course, was that... Um, I couldn't talk openly about what I knew, um, even to colleagues. How, how difficult was that for you? How frustrating? And it wasn't that length of time uh, to keep that secret, to keep that under the wraps in, in such a way that you could you know, manufacture some kind of a, a, a resolution. Well, now, when you see keeping the content... The content wasn't kept secret because there were papers passing, and those could be, those could be shared with Sean O'Higgins and Foreign Affairs and so on. The only thing that couldn't be shared uh, was the fact that I was having direct meetings. But very often I would come back with. I mean, I do always remember a piece of paper. Now, from time to time, I was given a missive by McGuinness to give to Reynolds. And sometimes it was signed Jerry Adams. Sometimes the missive came from the Army Council. And this particular missive, I think sometime in 94, didn't make clear whether it came from Adams or from the Army Council. So I naturally asked um, McGuinness, um, uh, uh, who does this come from? And he smiled sweetly at me and said, does it matter? So it it just goes to to show how how um, uh, how alive and how uh, how how these people were reacting. Did you could you see light at the end of the tunnel? Yes. Well, uh, if if I if 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 I couldn't see light at the end of the tunnel, which was the position in eighty eight after a couple of meetings and the SDLP had come to the same conclusion, then I don't think it would have been defensible to carry on the dialogue. Now, if you fast yeah. forward three years to the autumn of 91, the situation had changed. Now, the probabilities of success were always against one. The odds were always against one, uh, against success. But the thing was so important and there was 
a chance, I wouldn't put it stronger than that, there was a chance that this would come right. And if so, that would be huge. I mean, remember, there had been peace efforts going back to the early 70s, and um, so the, the, the odds, historically particularly, were, 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 were against success. But as long as there was some hope of success, uh, then it was worth persisting with. Now, at times it was difficult. Now, I mean, the one person I did talk to, of course, was my wife. Um, and she would have had grave difficulties at the time of um, the Warrington murders. Um, but I kind of took the view that if you allowed, and this is arguable and debatable, but this was my view, is that if you allowed yourself to be influenced by, you know, violence happening or violence for a certain period not happening, uh, then you were, you could be putting yourself or the government into a very pressurable, mm. a pressurable situation. Um, and I took the view that the dialogue was right. Now, sometimes things they did cause great difference. I can remember even Father Reed, who was very close to them, um, being very angry when in August 94, which was within two, three weeks of the ceasefire, um, they shot dead a leading loyalist thinker. Now, he had a background. He had done things um, um, uh, beforehand. I, his Christian name was Albert, but I can't remember his surname. Um, and we remonstrated with McGuinness, um, uh, and McGuinness was uh, at his coldest, um, just dismissed it, just said he was a killer. Well... You know, I know it. <laughs> you could have all sorts of reactions to that, um, but um, but you were uh, dealing you were dealing with people who were involved in murder. I mean, and and you know you had on the other side uh, your family, and here you were, mm -hmm. uh, and so did you? Were you passionate about what you were doing to 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 try and bring this? Uh, to to peace. Well, yes, but with this qualification, and uh, Hoy would have been taught me this. Um, I mean, when there was, there was one time in early eighteen eighty eight, um, when I appeared, something I said appeared to be somewhat excited about the prospect of uh, going to the meeting, and um, uh, he, he he said. You know, you have to deal with this sort of coldly, not passionately. You know, um, uh, you know, so that you're you don't. Yeah, your, your your analysis doesn't uh, doesn't uh, get around. Now, I mean, there is one one thing I did in dialogue with him, which not uh, other people would have adopted. Indeed. The, uh, there was a northern back channel which was entirely separate and which we knew nothing about until it burst out into the public in late 93. Um, but I took the view that uh, I had to be especially careful that in anything I said to them, 
um, that it was said honestly in good faith rather than trying to use, um, you know, remote prospects to persuade them, you know, to engage in wishful thinking to persuade them. Now, not everyone would have adopted that, but, um, you know, maybe that's something to do with my Protestant background. I don't know. Um, but anyway, um, the, 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 important, the important thing was to establish one's bona fide. Now, one might be wrong as I sometimes was in my prognostications, but it wasn't out of bad faith, you know. Um, it wasn't that I was trying to persuade them of something that wasn't true in order to get them to do that. Uh, do, uh, what was very clear was, uh, and I remember this was the era of Cardinal Daly and so on, um, it was never the case that what was needed was another sermon to get them to stop. They had to be persuaded that it was in their interest and that they would gain more for themselves and for their objectives by stopping. And that was the only basis on which they were, which they were going to do it. Were these Republicans coming from the old school of Republicans and trying to establish, or what were they trying to do? I mean, well, I think what is true sorry, when you when you I, talk, when you talk you're close to it now. When you when you talk about the old school of Republicans, I think it is undoubtedly the case. Father Reed was brought up in Tipperary. My father was a historian who very well understood, in particular republicanism as it operated in Tipperary, which may have been a bit different from the way it operated in Cork. But anyway, um, I would have been influenced by that image of... Uh, you see, I did trust them, unless I did something way off board, uh, to keep secret and confident. I was never greatly worried that there would be a leak coming from them that I was in dialogue with them, which could have been terminal as far as my career was concerned. Um, but um, so I kind of treated them as, you know, if, if, if they gave their word to me about something that they would, they, 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 they would keep it now. I mean, maybe that was a little bit naive. I don't know. But they didn't actually, in my case anyway, they didn't me let... You see, I remember Bill Clinton saying about um, uh, Sinn Féin that, uh, you know, he was dealing with Slobodan Milosevic. He said Milosevic would promise anything and everything and keep nothing. Whereas um, the Republican movement was very difficult to persuade to agree to anything. In fact, it, what they agreed to would be something that they would have to carry out. So therefore, they were very careful about what they agreed to. That's, for example, why uh, the uh, the decommissioning section of the Good Friday Agreement is so vague and aspirational. Mm. Um, now, they did things subsequently, not because the Good Friday Agreement said they had to do it, um, um, but because of necessity. And the best reply I ever gave to a question in a live interview, probably a local radio one, was I was asked, um, uh, did I trust Sinn Féin? Uh, to which I replied, I trust the necessities they are under. <laughs> 
Just to just to put this in context, then Martin, could you tell me the period you're dealing with? Was this the first? Uh, yeah, the first, the first, the first, the first phase was 1988 to 1994, which was uh, leading up to the Downing Street Declaration and the establishment of the first IRA ceasefire. The next phase, which was from 1994 to 1998, much of which we spent in opposition up until uh, June 97, um, was, if you like, trying to negotiate an agreement that would underpin the ceasefire. But there was difficulties about getting into negotiation, in particular Sinn Féin and preconditions about whether they had to decommission first Mm -hmm. and so on. Now, they didn't get into the talks until September 1987, which was after we had returned to power. They had to reinstate the second ceasefire. you know, the ceasefire having broken down because of their inability to get into talks. Uh, I mean, other than those organised in Dublin Castle, a forum for peace and reconciliation, but that was purely southern parties plus non-unionist parties in the north. Um, And then, of course, the third phase was implementation of the agreement, um, which lasted at least till 2010, um, you know, fleshing out different bits and getting different bits in place, like, uh, you know, um, recognition of, uh, you know, a new policing reform, a new mm. police service, devolution of policing powers, decommissioning, um, the closer definition and establishment of north-south bodies and so on. Um, there was a whole whole constant negotiation post post the agreement. Now, my role in the um, agreement negotiations, a particular, particular role that I had was related to the constitutional accommodation, the changes to Articles 2 and 3, um, and the corresponding changes on the, on the British side. And I had to sell those changes in advance effectively to the cabinet but my being there meant it wasn't strictly a cabinet meeting it was a ministerial meeting um to meetings around the country um and you know i mean one of the things that would have given me most satisfaction was the huge vote in favor of the good friday agreement uh, 94.7%, I think, south of the border and even higher. Oh, no, sorry, in the nationalist community, even higher in the north. But it, no, the overall figure was 71% in the north. But, I mean, if, when you compare it with any later uh, referendum results, I mean, that was fantastic. Well, that obviously I can see that uh, and I, I, an awful lot of credit uh, would go to you. You were there from the very beginning. Yes, then. yes, I was. How does that make you feel? Well, I think I think I think there is uh, there's a general consensus uh, that the uh, peace process was a major political achievement, um, and indeed the fact that it is the Good Friday Agreement is so central to the Brexit negotiations. <laughs> at this point in time, you know, um, uh, long afterwards. Uh, so I, th- I, th- I think there is a lot of satisfaction at, 
you know, in one's life, um, having achieved something. But through through those uh, years of negotiating and meeting with these mm. people and trying to to uh, of course I was meeting with a lot more than just Sinn Féin obviously Uh, my next question was you know was there an American influence in all of this oh yes I I think the American influence was was considerable now Bill Clinton was somebody who was not particularly during the major administration which is when most of all this happened um uh, was not specially Anglophile because uh, the Tory party on behalf of the the Bush party uh, had been looking to see could they uh, track down um, photographs of Clinton in Oxford in the late 60s taking part in anti-Vietnam war demonstrations. And I remember Clinton once saying at a meeting I was at, um, I like John Major, I hate the Tories. Um, oh, that's it. But were you talking with George Mitchell? Were you well, George Mitchell? George, no. I mean, to be frank, the the constitutional discussions did not really involve George Mitchell. Who uh, were you talking with? From well, I, from from outside, outside sources. Well, I we I mean, obviously there was a lot of internal discussion about what exact formula we could. And that evolved between Albert Reynolds and Bertie Ahern. The yeah. Bruton administration had more or less left the matter alone. They hadn't; nothing really had happened during that two and a half period, year period uh, that, that that they they were in office. Now, obviously, there would have been um, uh, discussions with unionists. Now, I think the unionists. They, they they broadly got what they wanted, which was it was the replacement of it wasn't the abolition or de, uh, of articles two and three, but their replacement. But the substance of it was already there. Now they they chanced their arm uh, using a um, uh, a lawyer, um, uh, you know, to, to try and push us much further. But we we we, we resisted that because uh, obviously this was a very very sensitive uh, sensitive subject. I mean, Sunday Business Post using leaks of earlier documents, um, you know, tried to make it difficult um, uh, for the government to proceed at all on these lines. Um, but yet there would have been no agreement without without uh, without the constitutional change. Um, so uh, we 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 would have been uh, we we would have been talking uh, talking to, to to unionists, and obviously we were talking to the British. Um, and uh, uh, but the the the, the 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 British were broadly happy with what we were doing. I don't think they got into they got into 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 mm. detailed um, um, uh, uh, drafting issues. The unionists, the Ulster unionists, attempted to do so. Uh, and then, to be fair, on on one particular point, um, they were right about uh, to do with the North South bodies putting in something about extraterritorial. The jurisdiction that wasn't in articles two and three of the reworded ones it was further down so there was a subsequent subsequent uh, a, a, a change but anyway that that was um uh, got but now i did have a, a an incident is that i was asked to go and address a quite stormy meeting in west belfast um 
Now, the audience would have been mostly sort of people, if not Sinn Féin, sort of aligned with them. And it was sort of, I, I gave a talk, and then there was a, a question of the whole thing might have lasted two, three hours. Um, um, but anyway, in the course of it, I had said, um, uh, you know, we're not abolishing Articles 2 and 3, which we weren't. We were rewording them. Anyway, there was a headline, and Trimble made an issue of it with 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 with, with um, um, uh, Bertie Ahern. But I remember in the restaurant in uh, Castle Buildings, a modern office block in the Stormont grounds, um, Trimble pointing his finger at me, and he said, "You." are a prime example of the degeneracy of the Irish public service since partition. And what was your answer? <laughs> I was just, to be honest, I was enormously flattered. <laughs> I didn't, I'm not sure I made any answer, but, <laughs> but anyway, some, sometimes insults <laughs> could be uh, the absolute opposite. of. <laughs> Bertie Ahern, member of the Fianna Fáil party, was elected Taoiseach in June 1997 and he played a major part with his background team in bringing an end to the violence in the North. Just the, the agreement again. I mean, it, it was signed and it's called the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, was, yeah. Is that symbolic in, in some way? Well, what, what happened actually was it, it, it was because it was Good Friday um, I think everyone that day said, listen, we were meant to finish on Holy Thursday. And they all said, listen, we'll get this finished today and get it agreed today. You know, this will be called the Good Friday Agreement. And then about an hour after it was finished, uh, the um, the Northern Ireland office, the, you know, they got all the, the Tony Blair and I had signed the documents and they said, and the uh, Northern Ireland office put, put the Belfast Agreement on the front of it. <laughs> and and when, when it was put down in front of me and I said, well, I always remember, I said, well, what agreement is this? And they said, well, we just thought it was uh, on Belfast, always put down where it's signed. Now, that's it's true, that's true. Like if it's the Nice agreement or Cologne agreement. Or, and I said, well, I know it's the first time anyone mentioned to me that it was a Belfast agreement. I said, I just had to be talking to all the others. And I said, I just signed the Good Friday agreement. So I said, from henceforth, it was going to be the Good Friday agreement. Oh, and that's, <laughs> and that's, that's, that's the story. Yeah. But there was nobody, at, now in fairness, I don't. I don't object. Um, I hear some people now that I never said about Belfast Agreement, uh, but I hear some people they say that about Belfast Agreement, about Good Friday Agreement. I have no problem with that either. But it it, it was never it, there was never agreement to call the Belfast Agreement. That was the history of that. Mm -hmm. um, there was a time, Bertie, when uh, your mother was 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 uh, her funeral, and and yeah, it was yeah. a crucial moment in in the yeah so. yeah. It, it all happened in Holy Week. Um, what what happened was. Um, we had the talks in London the previous week. I came back on the Saturday night. I came back here to John Condon on the Saturday night. And I'd been, I'd been in London all week. And we'd been at, at, there was this thing called the Asian Summit, the Asian European Summit. But in the morning times, I was negotiating with Blair. At lunchtime, I was negotiating with Blair. Evening times, I was negotiating with Blair into the night. And uh, George Mitchell was on the phone. We were doing these conference calls and we were changing the documents, you know, the way it goes. So I came back on the Saturday and was I, I was tired because it'd been a long week and you were you know it'd been we I'd been over in London we back and forward and I had very few civil servants with me in London because I was there on another business I was there on the Assam summit so I think I had one or two just and I had other civil servants dealing with the Assam summit but only one or two dealing with Northern Ireland so I was doing most of the work myself and then um, 
Uh, back in the, every time you, you get out of the meeting, you're, you'll be on talking about it. And I was sitting beside Premier Zhu Ranji, the president of the Premier of China, during all the talks. And he was wondering what all this stuff was going forward. Blair and I sending notes across, and I got good, very friendly with him afterwards. And uh, I'll tell you a story about that after. But he, 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 um, he was fascinated, and I told him that we were working on the talks for Northern Ireland. He was very interested in you know, because he saw the documents being passed, Blair was chairing the meeting, he passed the document, back to me passing the He thought we were doing something about China or something. <laughs> I don't know, no, there was nothing to do with Assam, this is Northern Ireland. So I got back, but I went I meant, went to meant to my mother, to go to my mother on the uh, Saturday night, but I didn't go to my mother's house Saturday night. I went for a walk, unfortunately, because I had to be up very early on Sunday morning to start the talks with the parties in Dublin, because I wanted to brief the Northern parties um, uh, uh, the, particularly the SDLP and Sinn Féin and the loyalist parties wanted to see me so I had a huge me- list of meetings in Dublin on the Sunday and I was also to meet the uh, the uh, the guards and, and the commissioner of the guards security committee get a brief and so mm-hmm. because we were wondering about what had happened if this was agreed or if it wasn't agreed so, so I had all these meetings and of course I, I should have went up to my mother on the Saturday night but didn't I started too early on the Sunday morning and then when I was in the middle of the meeting somebody passed in a note from my sister Eileen to say my mother had had a heart attack and she'd been rushed to the matter and it was critical so I had to keep going with the meetings because you know there, there were important meetings so I had to keep going with the meetings and then when I finally finished about two or three o'clock I, I went straight to the matter and then I stayed in the matter till the early hours of the morning and then my mother died and on the Monday, I had arranged, my mother died at six in the morning, and Monday I had arranged to, to meet all the parties in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Dáil, uh, to meet John Bruton and his colleagues, and to meet Rory Quinn, the Labour colleagues, and to meet the Rossa, who was still leader of the Workers' Party. So I had to keep doing that, and then I remember Clinton was on to me, and, you know, so, and I was back and forward, with the few, then my mother was removed on the Tuesday, I was in the North all day Tuesday, I came back for the removal, had to meet George Mitchell that night in Dublin and back up for the for meetings on Wednesday morning and back down to my mother's funeral and left the graveside. I always remember when I was walking away from the graveside, um, a civil servant came over to me and he said, um, um, I'm very sorry, he said, Taoiseach, uh, you know, your, your mother's funeral unfortunately ran, you know, two hours late and, and uh, I hate saying this, but they're really waiting for us back in Belfast. And, you know, you're walking out of glass in Evan Cemetery. So, uh, so they were all going back for lunch across the road in the Skyline. Uh, so I went back to the Skyline and I walked down the queue where they were all queuing to have their lunch and I shook hands to everybody and went out the door and back to Belfast. <laughs> so it, 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 it was, uh, right. it was a difficult week. Did you totally wrapped up in this? Were you, were, were you absolutely, you know, sucked into it really oh well I had to be I mean you know we'd been remember we started the talks in September 97 and this was now the second week of April 1998 so we'd been at it non-stop so and Mitchell and all the guys had all said listen they're going on holidays and they're going and they're leaving on Friday because uh, it was Easter and Tony Blair was going to Portugal or Spain I can't remember and his wife and kids are already gone and then um, I was just coming back to Dublin. I think Dublin were in the league semi-final or something in Crow Park. That was my weekend. So I was hanging around here and I was going to some of the Easter celebrations, to some of the Republican celebrations that were that were here at the time the Fianna Fáil held. And um, so uh, I, I wasn't rushing anywhere really, but you know, I knew everyone was going to break up. So if we didn't finish on the Friday, this was going to break up and it was going to be a mess. So... You know, funeral, mother's funeral apart, I, I, I knew I had no option. You know, people often said to me afterwards, how did you do it? Well, 
you know, how you did it was there wasn't an option. I just had to do it, yeah. But who were the people that helped you? Who were the, who were the people that supported you, that, that you know, that, that gave you advice behind, you know, in the background? Um, well, I had, I, I'd obviously, um, um, David Byrne, the Attorney General, was, was, was hugely important. Um, uh, Rory Brady, who, who was a senior counsel. Yeah. Um, good Republican, strong Republican, became Attorney General later, but he was a big advisor of mine. Um, and then uh, uh, Paddy Tehan and uh, uh, Dermot Gallagher, um, the civil servant, hugely, hugely important. Paddy Tehan, hugely important. Tim Dalton, hugely important. Um, and later on, uh, a civil servant called Michael Collins, of all names. Uh, he, he was, I think he's ambassador in, um, he's ambassador in Washington at the moment. Uh, it was a, a funny name to, for a senior civil Wasn't servant. That, yes. Uh, but he, he was hugely helpful. And they were, and then with some other guy, it was a, guy, it was a civil servant called Montgomery and a few, but there was a few civil servants that were, were but we had a very small crew. Yeah. A very, a, a very, we had a very small number of people. Like, and, and that was purpose. We kept it tight. Um, I briefed a cabinet myself, obviously. I kept the cabinet on site totally. Um, but it was a very small uh, group, and of course... And did, did, did this eat into your time, you know, as, as oh, a teacher for the country? I mean, you massively, were... Massively, massively. Mean, and did, did you think it affected your... your well, your I mean, I had no option. I mean, I, I on average, in my period as Taoiseach, I had to give 30, 40 hours a week to the North, all the way through, all the way through, right up till 2007, uh, up till we finalised the agreement. But every week I had to do, you know, at least 30 or 40 hours. I mean, you know, briefing myself, keeping on top of the North, going through the talks, because you know the way it continued on from 1998, 2000. So, like, I was doing 80, 80 hours a week, 90 hours a week, you know, all the way through as Tisha, as every Tisha does, and sure, present Tisha does, and past Tisha does. But I did 80 or 90, but the North was taken. 30 or 40 so you had to do all that you know you, and you had to do the other things like it, w it wasn't a question you could say that someone that like if i had that those 30 hours you could have been doing something else but you, you still would have been working anyway yeah uh, rory montgomery oh yes uh, he, he, he was the uh, and there were a few other seniors but was it was as i said it was a very small group yes and so uh, do you think that this was probably uh your biggest achievement in, in ah, twenty yeah. years. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the old, it, it, I mean, the, ultimately, the Good Friday Agreement it, it saved lives, saved bombs, saved hardship, saved, you know. So, uh, and the fact we put so much of our time and life into it, um, like I think we did lots of other good things. People would probably say we did lots of other bad things, but you know, we, I, I think you know, uh, the two, the two areas where I had to put in a huge amount of hours was that was the Good Friday Agreement, and then every week I spent 10, 15 hours chairing the committee on them. Um, on infrastructure that, that was the committee that did the roads and the highways and the sewage and like that was that was the other big drag on the time so we were you know that was like that that was 10 15 hours a week we used to meet for a full day and then you had to read the documents read the briefs mm -hmm. so you know they were the the two things that that i think worked very well and then other things that we were involved in from the time time the european agenda of course is always busy because the teacher is always engaged but your in the predecessors group. then that came before you um but i i i think you know all the Taoiseach back from, you know, from Cosgrave's side, from, from, you know, Liam Cosgrave, uh, then Charlie, you know, um, then Gareth Fitzgerald, and even though Gareth, you know, Gareth was there for less than five years in total. 
and um, you know they they all they all then Albert was there for two and a half years. They all did their best. I mean, I, I think they 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 all played their role and then and they mm. all did their best. And um, the reality was when when I took over in in John Bruton when I took over in nineteen ninety five or nineteen ninety four as leader of Vinifal the the ceasefire broke down shortly after that so when I got in we had to start again when when I took over then as leader of the opposition I mean the the, the forum for peace and reconciliation was on Dublin Castle I spent all day Friday in that I worked very hard getting to know all the northern parties that we had the clerk over in South Africa at that time um, I, I got friendly with Sarah Ramaphosa in South Africa I mean you know I, 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 I got um uh, I, I, I worked to trying to get to know personally all the individuals and players and um, we had various religious groups down to the Forum for Peace and Reconciliation and that was really working well that was working and, and then I think the whole thing collapsed uh, mm -hmm. the ceasefire broke down so when I came in in 1997 we had to start at the start again um, and you know <laughs> to be honest anything that had gone before wasn't much use to me we had to we had to pick it up again <laughs> In 2003, Tom Elliott was elected as a member of the Northern Ireland Assembly, representing Fermanagh and South Tyrone. He was re-elected in 2007 and again in 2011. He served as leader of the Ulster Unionist Party from September 2010 until March 2014. He explains here that he has always been a supporter of any endeavour towards peace, though not at any cost. The Good Friday Agreement, did you think Northern Ireland became a safer place after that? Um, <clears throat> I think it gradually did. Uh, we had a ceasefire for some time, obviously, before it. Uh, but... It was a time, it, it took a huge amount of time for many of the people to start trusting each other again. And uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't a matter, Morris, of on the, on the 14th of April, or whatever the day after the Belfast Agreement was signed, that you automatically thought, oh, we're in a much better place now. It wasn't like that. Uh, it was a, a gradual process. Okay. And uh, it meant building relationships, uh, building trust, and uh, it certainly wasn't an instantaneous event. The, the releases from prison of IRA and, and UVF, I suppose, that were released who were out there, you know, and, and caused havoc, havoc for, for that duration. I mean, did, were you quite comfortable with that, no. that they were all being released? No. I was very supportive of the party being involved in the talks process. Or were you? And what I, what aspect? Well, again, it goes back to what I said earlier. I, I was very supportive of anything that, that oh, yeah. was a process to try and help Northern Ireland. <clears throat> so I was very supportive of the party being involved in the talks. I was, I suppose, a soft no to the Belfast Agreement. And when I say a soft no, the thing that that broke the camel's back for me and why I voted against it was because of the release of prisoners without having decommissioning secured. And I always felt that David Trimble bought the agreement too early. If he had let it run on for a period of time, he, he would have got a better agreement. 
and uh, that's why I, I wasn't supportive of the, the Belfast Agreement as it was and, and that was the reasons. So living here, uh, just outside Enniskillen, in your, in your home place, if you like, um, has that changed much in, in the last number of years? Do you mean the environment? With, with the environment, with trust, with people coming together, with uh, open communities? Um. Oh, yes, there has been changes and there's been gradual changes. And uh, Look, I suppose you, um, you look at things like local community groups, mm-hmm. you know, that are, are working together now that wouldn't have worked together in the past. Uh, organisations within the community that do things together. So yes, that there is an, and there is not the mistrust, particularly mm. among younger people, younger generation growing up, uh, that that there would have been um, the local town of Enniskillen uh, forty years ago. The pubs would have been quite divided, and uh, certain uh, cultures or or uh, religious people, religious. If you're one denomination, you know, if you're a Protestant or a Unionist, you went to certain pubs. If you're a yeah. Catholic or a Nationalist, you went to other pubs. And there were a few that, that there was a bit of mixing with, but, but very little. But now that's all changed. We've come to the end of this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, if you would like to hear the full interviews, they're available on irishlifeandlore.com. My name is Morris O'Keefe and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.